So as we begin today, I want to begin with a question. And that question is this. How many of you have ever been going through a hard or difficult time and a well-meaning, nice Christian said something really hurtful? Raise your hand. Remember, you're in church. Don't lie. So, so many of us have, have been in experience where we're going through something hard and somebody says something that doesn't even help at all. Like, it makes it worse. And I've labeled these things, dumb things Christians say. So this is how we're going to begin the morning today. Christians say things like, it gets better, which might be true, but it really sucks right now. So don't tell me it gets better. Don't worry. God's in charge, which makes me feel even better about what just happened to me right now. Maybe God needs to get your attention. I'm just going to leave that one there because I can't say anything nice about that. Maybe it happened for a reason, which is great if I knew the reason, but otherwise I feel pretty stupid. Call me if you need anything, which if you've ever been going through something hard, you have enough stuff to worry about to remember who you should call when you need something. Like just go to the grocery store and buy me some food or something. Um, I could never go through what you're going through, which is really helpful. (laughs) And I saved the best one for last. When I think of what you're going through, I'm reminded of how blessed I am. (laughs) Yeah, so about that. I ask myself sometimes, like, why do we say these things? Because I think a lot of us have been on both sides of the coin, you know? Like, we've been the one who said something and walked away and go, man, what was I thinking? And then on the other side, we've been like, why would you say that to somebody? And, and I think it's because we, we don't know how to deal with pain. We don't know how to deal with grief. We don't know how to deal with loss. And when I say we, I'm not saying you. I'm saying we. Because I include myself in this. I'm a pastor, but I've still said really dumb stuff before. And, and one of the reasons why is that I, I think sometimes we, we don't necessarily know what we're supposed to do and we feel bad for the person who's in pain. So sometimes why we say this stuff is not for them, but for us. We're trying to make ourselves feel better, not necessarily them. And, and this morning we're going to continue what I hope has been a really honest conversation. Because I, I think sometimes church can be like the least honest hour of your week. And I'm just kind of on a personal mission to make it the most honest hour of your week. So I hope this place is like the honesty place for you, where you can just show up and be honest with yourself and with God and with others and allow him to to meet you there. Because in this series, we've, we've covered some really tough stuff. We talked about shame the first week and how we can exchange shame for God's approval. We've talked about addiction and how we can exchange addiction for freedom in Christ. We talked about the family we're born into with all of that stuff. And about how we can exchange that family for, for the family that we're adopted into in the family of God. And then last week was disappointment. And how we can exchange disappointment for hope. And today we're going to kind of continue that pattern. By the way, this is the last sad face emoji you're going to see. Next week is going to be a smiling face one. But it's going to be a little bit of a trick. So just kind of watch out for that. But this week we're talking about our past. And here's the main idea that we're hoping to, to drive home this morning. That in Christ, we exchange our past for a bright future. In Christ, we exchange our past for a bright future. 
Now, before we jump into the text for today, let me just make a caveat, and this message is kind of caveated to the hilt. There are some of you today that this might not be the day that you need this message. You may be in a really good place right now. And so this message is one that you, you listen to, you take notes on, and you kind of file away for the future. There are others of you that, that you may be in such a painful, difficult place today that, that you can't hear this. Like your feelings are so strong. The emotions are running so high. And that's okay. This may be a message where you get mad at me. And that's okay too. But my hope is not to give you trite, cliched answers. But in the middle of what you're going through or before you go through something, to, to try to introduce hope. And to point you where hope is found. I'm not trying to resolve everything and I don't have all the answers. But I do believe this text today has something to say to us about the places where we really live. Where stuff really happens. And where we really struggle. So with that lovely, fun intro, let's open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 has been our, our, our home for the last few weeks, and we'll wrap up this series next week. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be starting out in verse 26. And if you were here last week, you go, Scott, we covered that verse last week. I know there's a point to, to what we're about to do. I'm going to kind of grab some of the last week's and pull it into this week's message. And, and we've covered a lot of long passages in this series. And this series could have gone on for eight or nine weeks, but Easter's coming, and we've got to wrap up by then. So what I, what I want to do today, because we have a shorter passages, I want to do something we haven't done in this series so far. I want to ask you to stand up. So stand up. And, and I want to invite you to read this aloud with me. And I'm going to ask my good friend Patrick in the back to take over my slides and just to advance us through, okay? So if, if you're willing, just read these words aloud with me and follow along. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God, we pray that you'd speak through your word this morning in ways that, that only we can hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, as you begin today, there's a couple of introductory thoughts I want to share with you, and, and I'm calling them two errors. They're the two big errors that I think we make sometimes in the passage like this. And the first one is that we read a passage like this individually and not corporately. So, so one of the problems is that, that we're so far removed from the day this was written, it's hard for us to comprehend. But when the book of Romans was written, everybody didn't have a copy. There was one copy. And it was written on a scroll, and it would have been delivered to the church, and they would have showed up, and it would have been read aloud. 
to everyone for them to hear. And in that world, they weren't 21st century Americans. They were 1st century Romans. And they were thinking about the world in very different ways than we were. And many of us are unaware of how impacted we've been by this idea called individualism. Individualism shapes the whole way we see the world. And so when you read the Bible and you read the word you, or I read the word you, we think it means me. But many times the Bible is not referring to an individual, it's referring to a group. And we weren't actually the original recipients of this book. The Romans were a long time ago. So when you read this this passage today, I don't want you to read like an American. I want you to read like a Texan and think y'all. When you hear you, I want you to think y'all. And for those of you who said, think that I distinguish between Americans and Texans, Texans will tell you that they're in the only state that can withdraw from the union. And so they're really arrogant about that. And so just remind them that they, they need us too. So, and then the second part is that we make an error by reading passages out of context. Romans is a a long book. It's 16 chapters, and we're just focusing on chapter 8. Today, we're just focusing on verses 28, 29, and 30. And if you read the verses that we're going to read out of context, you can get some really bizarre ideas. If I came down and I asked you for your phone this morning, which I'm not going to do, by the way, but if I asked you for your phone, and I opened it up, and I went into your messages app, and I scrolled down, and I found just one message you sent this week, I might find something really interesting or really bizarre. And I could take all sorts of ideas from that one sentence if I took it out of context, who you were talking to, what you were talking about, what was going on. So in the same way, one of the verses we're going to read today has been so taken out of context that it's been badly abused. And so today we're going to read this passage corporately and we're going to read it in context. So with that, with that context, this morning what I want to do is I want to share with you three promises that you can claim when you're in between the past and the future, which is where we all live. And the first one is this, that God is at work. When you're in the middle of a season of pain or when that season of pain becomes part of your past and you're living between that moment and the future, the first promise you can claim according to Romans 8 is that God is at work. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Some of you in this room, this may be your favorite verse in all the Bible. It's one of the top five most favorite verses in the Bible. That's the good news. It's a popular verse. The bad news is, is it's one of the most abused and misinterpreted verses in the Bible. And many times it's made to mean things that it doesn't. And so today I'm hoping to write that wrong. But the first thing I want to do today is I want to talk to you about your high school English class. High school English class. When you were in high school English, if you were given this sentence, you might diagram it. Remember, there was like a subject and a verb and a direct object and an adverb and an adjective. Some of you are getting cold sweats. I'm not going to talk about English class the whole day, I promise. But when you read this verse, many of us read this verse as if all things is the subject. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. The problem is that the subject of this verse is not all things. The subject is God. You say, Scott, why does that matter? Because if all things work together for good was the subject or main focus of this verse, then our hope would be that when we're in a difficult season, all things will work together for good one day in the future. 
But that isn't really helpful when you're in pain today. Because what that means is that you have to wait 30, 40, 50 years for your hope to be real. No, if God is the focus of this verse, then it's not that our hope is that things will work out one day. Our hope is that God is at work today. Do you see the difference? It's not that that one day we can have hope that everything is going to work out. No, our hope is that God is at work today and he's working all things together so we can have hope now. That's a huge difference. That's a huge gap. And many of us, when we read this verse, we read it as if just the first part of this sentence is true. That all things will work out one day. We read this, this verse like, well, you know, all things will, you know, work for good at some point in the future. You know, I guess it'll all work out. That's not what the verse is saying. Paul is saying is that those, for those who love God, God is the one who's making all things work together for good. Which is why maybe a better translation would be God is working all things together. So when you're in a difficult situation, what you need to know is not that maybe one day in the future you'll be able to see how all things worked out. Your hope is based on this truth that God is at work now. He's present and engaged now. You don't have to wait for hope one day. You can have hope now. And, and the reason you can is because of the word that Paul uses. The word for working here is, is the equivalent word that we get the English word synergy from. It's the Greek word synergy. And if you've ever been in a, a corporate setting, you know, synergy is one of those buzzwords, you know, synergy, synergy, you know, that people, I'm sure you heard a consultant give a 45 minute talk on that made no sense about the word synergy. And the word synergy basically means that a group of elements are being combined that are different and their whole is stronger than their parts. When you put them together, they're stronger than if they were separated. And what Paul is saying is that God is synergizing all things together in our lives. He's bringing all of the things in our lives, the good and the bad, the joy and the pain, the the laughter and the tears. He's bringing them all together and he's working them all together, almost like a chemist who's combining different elements to create something. And that something is our good. And let me be clear on what I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God is the author of evil. I'm not saying that God is the cause of pain. And that's what many of us begin to believe when we're in pain. We believe somehow God caused this. We believe somehow God sent this. Somebody tells us, well, maybe you deserved this. Maybe you asked for this. Maybe God's just trying to get your attention. Maybe he sent this to you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Romans 8 says. But what I am saying is that we serve a God who wastes nothing. You Scott, how do those ideas work out together? Well, they, they live in tension with each other. That God isn't the author of evil, but he refuses to waste it. That God didn't send pain but he's going to use it. And that's a difficult place to be. Don't don't mistake me. I'm not saying that this is an easy tension to live in. But this this is what the scriptures tell us. 
that, that God is a God who is working all things together and he's not calling bad things good because again, this verse has been used to say that the, the pain that you're in, it's okay, it's all good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not good. It's the opposite of that. But, but what this verse is saying is that God is working all things together and the meaning of the word all in Greek is the same thing as in English. It's all. There's nothing in your life that God will not use for his good, for your good. And the verse begins with an interesting statement. It says, for we know. The word here for know is is the same word we would use to say that I know two plus two equals four. And here's what the problem is. For most of us, when we're in pain, we're living somewhere between the facts and our feelings. Right? Like, I know that God works all things for good. I just don't feel like it. Like, I know that God is so God, I just wonder what the heck he's thinking. I know all these songs I just sang, but my pain is so strong that it's causing me to doubt it. And this place right here is the stuff we don't talk about. Because it's the place that most of us live. And that's why I said for some of you, this may not be the day that you need this message because you may be living in the space between facts and feelings and so you can't hear what I'm saying. Let me just say this, if that's you. Knowing the truth doesn't eliminate the pain we feel. Right? Like just because you know all the answers in your head doesn't mean that your heart changes those feelings. And sometimes churches tend to be one to the exclusion of others. Some churches tend to be so much about feelings that they lose sight of the truth and the facts. And some churches tend to be so much of the facts that they lose the feelings. And I don't know about you, but I can't control my feelings. You know? I can't just switch my emoji on my phone and go, happy face, I'm happy now, you know? Like, I can turn this face around a whole lot easier than I can change my feelings. You can just spin from pain to joy on your own. And so knowing the facts doesn't eliminate your feelings, but it doesn't also mean that your feelings change the truth as well. Paul also says that these things that God's working together, they're for good. And this is not place this verse has been so badly abused because when we hear the word good, we think of good in a 21st century American sense. We think of happiness and wealth and health and blessings and a post on Facebook with the hashtag blessed. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that God is going to work all things together for your health, your wealth, your prosperity, your blessings, so that people would admire or even envy you. What he's saying is that he is working them for good. And in the next verse, he explains what that good is. He says that that good that he's working towards is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's good in your life that you would one day look like Jesus. And, and that could be in poverty or it could be in prosperity. That could be with 
all of your needs met and all of your wants. It could be God showing up just on time to meet your needs. This is again where we've abused this verse. We've made it a name it, claim it kind of thing where when I go through something bad, it's just God's way of preparing me to hit the jackpot in the future. And that just doesn't work. Tell that to the hundreds of millions of our brothers and sisters who are living in poverty in Africa and South America today. Tell it to our brothers and sisters who didn't worship today in ease and comfort, but who worshiped it in persecution in China and Indonesia and North Korea. This verse has so much hope, but it also has so much potential to lead us astray. And Paul concludes this verse by saying that these things, they are for those who love God and they are for those who are called according to his purpose. So he's saying that if you're somebody who loves God, if you're somebody who's been called by God for God's purposes, you can know with absolute certainty that God is at work and he's working together everything in your life for the purpose of making you more like Jesus. It doesn't solve all your questions about why that pain came. It doesn't give you an answer about why you lost that child or lost that dream or got that diagnosis or got that pink slip at work. But it is a promise that God is not going to waste a single thing in your life on his work towards making you like Jesus. And that's why we can have hope. Is that God is not done with us. I've read a lot to prepare for this series. And and one of the quotes I read that I can't remember who said it is this. The writer said, Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. That's Romans 8.1. It ends with no separation. That's next week's sermon. And in the middle, there is no defeat. And that isn't because we're just strong, resolved, dedicated people who refuse to give up. That's because God is at work. And he will not be defeated even by the pain and suffering we endure. And this is why this is... This is so important is because when you're in a season of pain that one day will be part of your past. You know this moment we're in right now is going to be part of our past one day. You're going to look back on it one day. You're going to see it differently. And two years ago, I shared this last week, I was in a, a role and applying for a role in a church that I really wanted to have and I got passed over for it and I felt, uh, I felt wronged. I, I felt uh, abused. I felt uh, misled. And what I didn't recognize in the moment, because I just was a mess of feelings, was that God was doing something even in a situation that I felt like was ungodly. And he was doing something to make me more like him. And he was moving me out of a place of comfort into a place of discomfort. And I would tell you two years from now, two years from then being right now, I'm more like Jesus than I was then. But I would have never chosen this. Yeah, I, would, I love being more like Jesus. But I don't love the path that got me there. But the promise 
that God has as I look back on that past moment is that God is working. And sometimes that's enough. Sometimes it's enough just to know that God is not done and that he's present and that he's doing stuff. And it isn't just that God's at work. Number two is that he's got a plan. God is at work with a plan. So it isn't just that God is kind of just fiddling around over here. No, no, he's actually intentional. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. And Romans 8, 29, Paul continues and he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that his son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now there's a couple controversial sections in this passage, and we're going to jump to those in a second. But I want to begin with what we can all agree on. And what we can agree on is that he's sharing a plan to make us like Jesus so that what is true in Jesus, the firstborn, would be true for us. I might summarize to say this. Our hope is in God's plan for salvation. Our hope is not that we would endure pain be good people, be better than other people, and die and stand before God and say, hey, God, I was better than them. Let me in. That's not our hope. I hope that as a pastor, I am a motivational, sorry, a motivating speaker. I hope that I motivate you because the opposite's terrible. Like demotivating at church, like that's not good. But if I'm only a motivational speaker, you get the idea that this stuff is about you disciplining yourself and doing it in your own power and strength. And that's not what we're talking about. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in God's plan for salvation. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to continue to remind ourselves that our only hope to follow and walk in the guide and the path that God gives us is in his power, not our own. Because if we could do it in our own power, why did Jesus have to so brutally die? Like, think about it. If you could do this on your own, that's cosmic child abuse. Not a compassionate, loving act. And our hope is in God's plan that he is going to make us more like Jesus, and it's going to be his power and strength to do that. Now, what you've been waiting for is there's two words in here that are hugely controversial. The word foreknew and predestined. And for the last 500 years, Christians who are not part of the Roman Catholic Church have bickered and argued over these two words. It's split churches. It's the reason why there's many denominations today. There's even some record where people have lost their lives in history because of these two words. But, but you have to accept them because they're in the Bible. So if you say, Scott, I don't believe in foreknowledge. I don't believe in predestination. Well, you don't believe in the Bible then. Because they're in there and we have to deal with them. But how they work together is, is something that a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned, studied Christians have struggled to understand. You see, we read the word foreknew and we read the word predestined, but what do they mean? The question is, because God foreknew, does that mean that, that we don't have a choice? We don't have a response? Are these separate things are the same? What did God know? And how did he predestine us? And does this mean that the people who God knew wouldn't choose him? Does that mean that he's predestined them to hell? How does this all work out? 
I said last week in my message that I guaranteed you two things this year. One, you would disappoint others. And two, others would disappoint you. And I'm about to fulfill one of those right now because I'm not going to resolve this for you. And it's not because I'm a punk. I'm just trying to be funny. I've got three really good reasons. The first one is that I don't think the point of Romans 8, 28 to 30 is these two words. It's a part of it, yeah. But it isn't the main point. Number two, if I resolved this for you and then laid out for you exactly the way I think it perfectly plays out, that's what you would go home and talk about. That's what you would discuss in your community groups. And you wouldn't talk about how you can live between your past and your future. You would just talk about this controversial topic. Which is what we do in church. We avoid the application we should make and then we just argue about stuff. And then number three, and this is probably the most important reason, is that our church as a community has resolved to not take a position on this question. Because we believe it's not a primary issue. We believe it's a secondary issue. And let me explain that using a statement from our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church. The Free Church writes, The fact of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is essential. And I'll just stop right there. This is what they're saying. They're saying, we're saying, that salvation is not by our efforts. It's not by our works. It's not by our discipline. It's by God's grace, our faith in God's grace, and in what Christ Jesus did alone. So this is not a work your way to Jesus. This is you can't do anything to work your way to Jesus, and he had to do the work. Both regeneration, that's the work the Spirit does, and faith, our response, are essential for salvation, and our statement of faith affirms both, without giving logical priority to either. And this is where we get into some bigger language Whether regeneration precedes faith, that's the position of Calvinism, so God does the work and then we respond in faith, or whether faith precedes the regeneration, we respond in faith and then God transforms us, that's the Arminian position, we have placed in a secondary category. So what that means is that we're not a Calvinistic church and we're not an Arminian church. We don't take a position on either one of those sides. Not because we're afraid of taking a position, but because as a church we're committed to only having positions on what we feel like are essential pieces of Christian doctrine. We have adopted the posture of John Wesley who said, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. So what that means is that if this is like a a big issue for you, like a a number one issue, this, this may be a difficult place for you to be. Because we're not going to show up to a fight about it. You can. That's awesome. We're just not showing up. We're not going to fight about this. And the last part here that I think is really important is in all things love. The most essential quality in a church is love. Because we're radically different people. If we were all the same, we wouldn't need love. But because we're choosing to embrace diversity, you need to know that there are people on our staff and our board and in our church who are on both sides of this issue. And we've chosen the posture of love towards each other because we believe that this is not the place that we need to be devoting our time and energy and our focus. Our time, energy, and our focus needs to be on God's plan, which isn't to make us all the same. It's to make us all like Jesus.
And I've spent more time than I even wanted to on that. So I'm going to go to number three, which is that God has a plan, which he's at work in, and he's going to complete. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul concludes this passage by saying, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, he uses some bigger words here. I've already mentioned that I'm not going to go into how predestination works, who it applies to, but I am going to talk about this fact that he says that he calls us, so no one comes to God unless God is the one who's drawing them. It isn't us. Justified is this term that means that we were at odds with God. We were separated from God. We were broken in our sin. And because Jesus died for us, when we put our faith and trust in him, we are now made right with God. We were at odds. We were, we were at animosity. And now we're reconciled. And then that final word is the word glorified. And that word describes who we will be one day when we are perfectly like Christ after our death. Now, what I want you to notice here is something really unique, and you may have glossed over it. What, is, what tense is called in? Past. You're, you're, not, you're not dumb. You know what you're talking about here. This isn't a trick. What tense is justified? Past. What tense is glorified? But you're not dead. Right? You're alive. So how can he use a past tense word for an event you haven't experienced. That's because in the eyes of God, his plan is guaranteed to finish. And God has already decided that you will be glorified. That's why we can have hope. Because God has a plan. He's at work with that plan and he's going to complete that plan. And in his perspective, it's so sure of being done, he's just going to call it glorified because it's already done. That's why you can have hope. It isn't just that God's at work somehow in the midst of this. It isn't just that he has a plan. It's that his plan will be completed. And if you are in him, one day you will look like Jesus. Not because you're a good person, not because you work hard, because you grew up in a Christian family, not because you're here at church today, but because you are in him. And he's at work in your life with a plan, and he's going to complete it. That's to me why this passage has given me so much hope this week. Because I know God's not done. And when he starts, he finishes. Patrick, if you could go to my next step slides, I'm going to skip this stuff so we can get people out of here on time. So the first step is not in your notes. I'm calling it step half because I wrote it last night. Just being honest. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is identify a trusted friend to listen. There are some of you who are in the middle of really difficult stuff. And if you're going to go through this well, you need to not go through it alone. And I want to encourage you, if this is a real present conversation, not one about a moment you used to struggle with or something you're headed into one day, I encourage you to find a trusted friend to listen. Somebody who's in your community group, somebody who attends the church with you, a a friend you've had. If you go, Scott, I don't have somebody like that, then come meet us at the belong table after the service and we'll introduce you to somebody. Because when you're going through a struggle alone, you go through it differently than if you go through it with somebody. So that's point half, not in your notes. Number one, 
this is the one I wrote earlier this week before we printed stuff, was reflect on the good and bad of your life and pray your way through it. If, if God's at work in our life in the midst of everything, the good and the bad, then I think we need to gain an awareness and an appreciation for that. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do this week is to reflect on the good and bad of your life and do it this way. I'd encourage you to make a, a list, a sheet, a paper, you know, eight and a half by 11. You can have lines or not. Draw a line down the middle and a line across the top and put the positives on one side and the negatives on the other and just go through your life. Now, you don't have to write everything. That might fill a whole notebook, you know, depending on your age and your experience. But as you gain awareness of the good and bad of your life, I believe that will lead you to appreciation for all the ways God has been at work. And I added pray your way through it because you may have to pray your way through writing that. This might be so hard for you that you have to do it in more than one sitting. And so pray your way through that. Number two, align yourself with God's plan. I think we need to consciously align ourselves with God's plan and recognize that just because we claim to be followers of Jesus doesn't mean we're always on board with God's agenda. And here's why. Because God is less concerned with our comfort than he is our transformation. And we live in a culture that has idolized comfort. But God is not primarily concerned with your comfort. He's concerned with making you more like Jesus. And that may mean you go through discomfort along the way. And then number three, and this is kind of back to my sarcastic intro. Commit to serve other people in hard times. I want us to encourage each other to to serve people in hard times, to not say dumb things, but really show up for them in meaningful ways. The first way that you can do that is by listening. I have a friend who, in a different season of her life, lost the child in pregnancy. She said that the most helpful person over that period of time showed up to her house, hugged her, and didn't say a word. She just listened. Number two, weep. The first verse I memorized as a kid was the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. I've not seen many hallmark images of Jesus weeping. We don't, we don't make that art. Sometimes we just need to weep with people. Number three, resist the desire to give answers. Because guess what? You can know the answer and still be in pain. Number four, keep showing up. We're really good at showing up when the crisis is happening, but our problem is we forget people have pain longer than we have memories. And then number five, be patient. Because if it's a grief process, everybody does it different. They do it differently every time, and there is no timetable for pain. So be patient with people. And just keep showing up. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.